Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been affected by and overcome adversity. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of a variety of guests, as well as your host. You will hear stories of despair, recovery, and triumph from people who have risen from or are making their way through wilderness experiences. The goal of the Unhooked podcast is to take a deep, productive look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of affliction. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real-life stuff that all of us face. You will hear wisdom and hope from people who are fighters, who fought to persevere through bewildering circumstances and difficult obstacles. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I will just um, get right to it. I know your task force had asked me to hit on a couple of points. So I'm just going to share my family's story. Oh, I'm a little short. My family's story of um, the effects of addiction. To be quite honest, it's a real and raw story, so I tend to get a little shaky about it. Um, I've not really had a day of my life unaffected by someone's addiction. Um, Just a little backstory. My mother and father, I'm the youngest of their six kids, and when they met, my father had come from a lot of poverty and lied about his age and got into the military early. He became a flight master with the Airborne for the Army. My mother came from kind of a very white-collar family, a lot of education, judges. Her father owned a loan company, so it was really these two worlds collided, and they had six kids. In the course of their marriage with their first four kids, my father presented with a really bad alcohol problem. My mom had her first child young and came from a lot of trauma, mental illness, and it was just disaster. They pretty much lived crisis to crisis and problem to problem and child after child. When the fourth child was born, my father became a Christian and started going to church and became kind of a self-help guru and was always trying to better himself and better his life. And they got swept into a couple of tides of prosperity beliefs and name it and claim it and faith healing and things like that. They kind of went to the extreme of everything to try to come out of this cadence of misery that they lived in. Um, But with that many kids, they just kept sinking lower and they experienced poverty and My father had stopped drinking, but he had become what is known as a dry drunk, which is an alcoholic that may not be drinking, but they're not emotionally sober. They're still pretty miserable. And he just didn't seem to be able to get it together. And along with all the stress and problems came a lot of health problems. So the younger two of the six of us were born, and they had this church life by then. I was born into the aftermath of all of this disaster, but never having had it explained to me, just picking up with the rhythm of the home. So we moved a lot. Um, When my mom was pregnant with me, their house burned down. She was eight months pregnant. They moved in with her parents, and it was a house full of chaos and conflict. So they progressed out of that and moved into a different home, but it never really settled or leveled out, not for long anyway. We didn't really live on a schedule of when are we taking a vacation or what holiday is it. It was more the course of what urgency are we getting through. Um, So by the time we moved, when I was about six years old, I had gotten sick. We moved into a new home. I got pneumonia. My parents were in a faith healing phase, so they didn't take us to the doctor. Um, I slipped into a coma and lost the hearing in my right ear. 
they quickly dropped that belief and started seeing doctors again. I was taken to the emergency room, but it was just always chaos and crisis. So by the time I was seven, when I returned from being in the hospital with all of that, they moved to another home and started me at another school. I wasn't told any of this. I was brought home and then dropped off at the school where Mrs. Kerstetter should have been my kindergarten teacher. I ended up with the meanest one in the, <laughs> in the school. <laughs> but that was where, for about the next seven years, um, the aftermath of all of this disaster tended to explode. Um, there was a lot of neglect. I was sent to school, really not tended to, not cared for. Um, we had a dirty home. This was a school where kids had, you know, was a little bit upper class. They were clean and had big, huge, beautiful homes. And I didn't know what I was going home to at night. So I was an inferno of confusion and boiling rage about all of these things. So by the time I reached middle school, I was trying to latch on to anything that would kind of make me feel stable or sane. And we did have times of a little bit more calm, but for the most part, it was just constant upheaval. So when I got into middle school, my mother was in a car accident and she had gone from being kind of nervous all the time and having mental problems and sleeping on the couch all day to a raging Percocet addiction. It was prescribed for her when I was 12 and she takes those to this day. She is still addicted. She doesn't miss church. She doesn't cuss or raise her voice. She can speak French and play classical piano, but she is absolutely strung out on opiates. Having come from all of that, I knew I had a, a knowledge of dysfunction and addiction, and I knew I did not want that for my life. I wasn't, I didn't want to be a reckless teenager or a reckless adult, but when I was 18 years old, the only boyfriend I ever had that I would ever allow to come see up close what my family was like because it was so difficult and embarrassing, and I didn't know what I was going home to every night. Um, I became pregnant, and we ended up getting married, so I spent nine years in a marriage with him trying to level life out and make peace and be peaceful and not chaotic and not live in crisis. So I wore myself out um, putting my son in Christian school and not missing a field trip or a school event or a sporting event and kept him really, really busy. His dad and I ended up divorcing after about nine years. And at that time, I thought, I don't have a chance to raise this kid with any hope because I'm just bound, I'm destined to repeat the dysfunction that I was born into. So I took the next 10 years and decided I would just spend it in workshops and in self-help books and counseling and all of those things to kind of write our life. And it all leveled out. I um, did really well at work. I took him to the ocean for the first time. He was a great athlete. He wasn't rebellious. He was a good-looking, well-mannered kid that did well in school. And then his junior year in high school, he suffered a broken jaw in football. He was an exceptional athlete in baseball and football both. And this broken jaw led to a surgeon prescribing Percocets at 17. And within about 30 days, it was like a tsunami hit our home um, because it completely changes everything about the personality of the person it latches onto if they develop an, a dependency. And it comes for everything in your household, every relationship, anything that's good about you. If you're a responsible person or a fixer, it is going to come and take over. And it just absolutely brought disaster. And my mother's addiction had been kind of dormant. We were aware of it. It's like mom's issues. Mom takes too many pills, but mom's a sweet little lady. And when his addiction surfaced, surfaced hers exploded and she became his enabler and would get prescriptions for him and hide things from me and um 
has escalated so quick that within a couple of months he was driving from our small town to the bottoms area and buying them before school. This was his senior year. And so absolutely as a parent or a grandparent or an affected family member, it makes you insane when you love somebody that has an addiction. It makes it it's not just fear. It is primal fear. It makes you climb the walls and walk the floors and go into situations with no fear other than this person's life. And I truly believed I was on the clock for this kid's life because you, as a parent, you're the one responsible for their correction and their discipline and to take care of them. So I ran this race with him and it got just worse and worse. We would have times where it would level off and there'd be hope and then that hope would be dashed. And the anomaly of it all was that my mom was kind of a parallel enemy and it just kept presenting worse and worse from her. And I had five siblings that were closer to her. So when I would, when she would come on the scene, they would join forces with her and it would all explode. Um, I had called her one day and said, I can't find him anywhere. You know, he was still a minor. I'm tracking him down. I, I didn't want him out of my sight. You know, we have to figure out how to get a hold of this thing. I think he's over at Caleb's. I'm just going to check. I'm just going to drive there and check. And she said, okay, well, I, I hope you find him. Good luck. So before I went, I called his voicemail. Or I called his cell phone and checked his voicemail because I did that for years. And she was on it and said, hey, your mom's on her way to Caleb's. If you're there, you need to leave. You need to hurry. She's on to you. And, I mean, it was like I don't still to this day have an explanation for why she had become such an enemy other than she – I think when you become so codependent to somebody, you think – your role and your job is to be involved and to save them and to kind of bypass consequences. And so that's what I dealt with all along with his addiction. And it was about a good six years of that. And he would bounce from my home to his dad's. His dad had gone on to kind of straighten out and do well in life and become a youth pastor. So we were passing him back and forth. And then he would get fed up with him there and they would have conflict and he would end up at a friend's house. And then he would seem like he was doing well, but then signs would present again. Um, tire blows every few weeks. Somebody, you know, when somebody's working, but they never have money and they always need it and you don't know where it goes and they're asking for money from you for an oil change or an outfit or something got stolen over and over. I mean, that is, that was a clear sign and conflict would come back in and all of these things would present over and over again. So I went on to, I mean, I was aware of it pretty quick. A lot of parents will say to me, if I would have known earlier on, I didn't know for five years what I was dealing with. I was never around addiction before. Well, I did know, and I tried to run a race against it and upset it and cause misery for him so he would face consequences, and I could not bring an end to this. Um, Because my mom was his enabler, I really believed I was the enforcer. So as much as she swept things under the rug and protected him and kept his secrets and ran alongside that, I tried to have him arrested. I went into the police station. Um, I would try to come up with charges or something. to. I would go into houses where I thought he was and try to order him out and threaten everybody there. And it just kept making it worse and worse and worse. So finally... We had gone through it about six times, round and round and round. He went into treatment at the, it was a year after he graduated from high school. It was 2009, I believe. Over Christmas, he went into a local treatment center. And so I thought, this is it. It's over. You know, he's gone into treatment. We can get back to having a normal life and he'll become a normal kid and go to college. And he relapsed the day he got out. So he had to return and go back in for a couple more weeks. And we ended up going through about another year of it. So because I didn't understand that this is a lifelong process. When somebody has introduced addiction into the home and the family, 
it's like turning a ship around. There is no one-time event that corrects the situation. So we went through another couple of years of it. He went down and stayed with his dad. Finally, he got down to about, you can see in some of the pictures, that's us. Um, he got down to 120 pounds. For a while, he was living, um, sleeping in a car at um, Walmart in a parking lot. And I would try to bring him into the home, but it would be like bringing a tornado into the home. But it's such a hard place for a mom. That's my only son. And how do you put them out? How do you watch them walk away? I remember sitting in the rocking chair that I rocked him in when he was a baby and watching him throw a bag over his shoulder and walk away and watching that back of his head leave and thinking, how can this possibly be our life? How can this be our life? I came from such a mess and I did everything. And at that time I was an insurance agent for about 16 years and I knew part of the process of being an agent was to assess risk. You cover the risk. So I, tr- I thought I did that with him. I thought I put him in private school. I didn't have a home with a ton of booze in the fridge or anything like that. There wasn't conflict in the home. I wasn't bringing men through his life. I was focused on getting him raised upright and it just kept exploding and getting worse and nothing I did could bring an end to it. So finally we had gone through about another couple of years of it and I was so highly triggered and just about to the point of giving up. And I, at that time, had become friends by accident with a couple of therapists. One of them worked in the court system with families that had substance issues, and she made decisions to remove kids or return them. So she started kind of untangling me from the process, and it's one thing to call your best friend and say, I'm dealing with this with my mom, and your best friend's like, ugh, your mom's so gross. And then this one could say, well, that's her inability to recognize nuance, and that's a trigger for her. You know, So she kind of untangled me from all of that. But it had gotten to such a terrible point with him that even she said, there's no way out for this kid. He's losing weight. He's getting worse. It's prison or death. And that was such an all or nothing. And I had come from being such trash or feeling like such trash that I just thought, well, this is just our destiny. There's no way out of this. This is just, we're just meant to have the carpet ripped out. Every time things start to look good, this is just it for us. We're just meant to be nothing. There's nothing I can do. It keeps getting worse. This is just our identity. So I went home um, that day. That was kind of a tide turn day for me. And I thought, you know, if she believes it, it must be true. If even she believes it. But I have this internal fight in me that kind of gets me through things. And it got me out of that childhood. So I went home that day and I walked the floor and I just thought, okay, he's still alive. There's still breath. It's bad. It looks really bad. And I don't know that by the end of this day, I'm not going to get that call. But how can I look at this? Because she says there's no hope. And I can't sit on that. I can't, I can't reconcile to that. So I started turning how I responded to it and thinking, okay, I'm going to call things that are not as though they are. And every time this situation rages at me, I'm internally going to say, this is going to work out. This is going to turn around. This kid's going to get sober. This kid's going to get healthy. This kid is going to be the example of someone that went to the depths and got healthy. And then it got worse. It got worse for probably about another year and a half. And he would agree to go to treatment. So... I'd pick him up and bring him into the home, but he had agreed so that he could come into the home and he would steal from me and take things out of my jewelry box. And he was really good at deceiving. Um, And a lot of this I wrote about in my book, if you want to check that out so I don't have to bore you with all my details. But um, at one point he had gone into treatment and 
a counselor had called me in for a family meeting and he had convinced her that I was too strict and that he was traumatized by how strict I am. So she brought me in and had believed him and corrected me in his presence. And then when we walked out into the hallway, he said, did you like that? Did you like how people believe me and not you? And I just knew I was dealing with a monster and this monster had taken over my son because my son was in there and my son was not evil, but this thing had just taken over. So it was one thing after another like that. Um, And then finally, when I had had it, I tried to remove him from any home that would take him in or warn people or call people and get into email wars with a family that would take him in. You're preventing him from rock bottom. He needs to feel this and suffer this. So he wants out and then he would turn them on me at first and they would say, this, you know, mother isn't taking her son in. It's his birthday. It was just one enemy after another besides addiction and my mother. And I really felt alone in the middle of it all. But I kept having to call those things that are not as though they are. This is going to work out. This is not over yet. And I developed this mantra, it ain't over yet. My friends would text it to me in those really down moments. This looks really bad. I haven't heard from him. I can't find him. I don't know where he is. When I did see him, he looked awful. And I would say, I will support you. I will drive 90 miles an hour to get to you and get you to treatment. If you will agree to treatment, I can't take you in because this is getting worse. But if you'll agree to treatment, and he'd say, I don't need treatment. You need treatment. I mean, it was just one mess after another, round and round. There were a couple of police situations that um, he had gotten aggressive, and I had called them just to kind of separate us. My mom would show up and say, if he has an addiction, it's because she is a miserable person and could cause anyone to be addicted. And then he would tell the police officer, my mom's the one with the addiction, not me. And, I mean, it was a nightmare. (laughs) So uh, eventually... The counselor that I had become friends with would start showing up and validating, and I knew to kind of keep my demeanor calm and logical and normal because they would believe if I was high-strung and freaking out, they would believe him and nothing would get accomplished, and they would leave and I would be returning to this mess. So it was a lot of years of that. And then finally, I decided I would go away and just step aside from the situation. And I asked, nobody take him in. Please don't take him in. But if he calls and agrees to go to treatment, I will go and pick him up. So he had pretty well worn out his stay anywhere. Nobody was trusting him anymore, believing him, and he was looking really bad. And to this day, as part of his story, he says, my mom gave me the greatest gift, and that was desperation. So I went away, and that weekend he moved into a dugout, and it was the same dugout. I used to watch him hit grand slams over the fence, and it was just about as despairing as it can get. Um, It almost can cost you your mind when your heart is that broken over a child. So while I was gone, he stayed there for a couple of days, and he's a little bit of um, a princess, so he did white strips on his teeth and took care of himself still, and he really likes comfort. So even in the midst of that, he was still him, Um, but he got sick of it and took, I don't know where he ended up coming up with it. He may have had money left. It may have been mine. He booked a flight to California and checked himself into treatment. So then I thought, oh, this is over. And I did everything right. I went away and I was the rails and I was the enforcer and I was not an enabler. All of those words we know from intervention. Um, And when he got out there, within 30 days, he had relapsed out in LA, all the way across the country. So there's nothing I could do about it. And I thought, "How, how could this possibly be? I thought this was over again. But wherever you go, there you are. So he took this misery and all of these things with him. He had gotten a counselor who had worked at this 
luxury treatment center fired because she had taken him on as like a mom figure and was sneaking money to him. She had worked in the industry for 18 years and had declared, no one has ever fooled me before. So she truly got herself fired because we're all responsible for our own lives, but he was really that lovable. So then he finds himself with no place to go in L.A., and I couldn't track him down. Um, But within about three days, I think it was, he had found himself into another treatment center. And I was scheduled for a visit out there. And I, ha- I was a lunatic by that point. So I called and threatened that I wanted to know where he was and how's he doing. And they said, well, he's over 18 and there's HIPAA. Well, I'm flying there and, you know, somebody, I need answers. So finally the director of the treatment center called me back. And this is how I think it's so important to put your faith into action and call those things that are not as though they are. Because the man that called me ended up, um, my father taught me about concepts of boxing when I was a little girl, psychological concepts for when you're an underdog and when you're sick and when you feel less than so that you can kind of get back up and keep going. Um, the man that called me had been a former boxing coach, but now he had run treatment centers. And so when he called, I said, I just, I don't think anyone can handle him. I don't think anyone can see, you know, what this kid's like. So I'm not trying to seem like a hateful person. I want him to be loved. Nobody loves this kid more than me. But if you don't know what you're dealing with, because he'll steal your purse and help you look for it. If you don't know that, then he will, he will devour you. So he said, so what you're telling me is he has this addiction and it's devoured everybody. It's left your life in ruins. He's a good looking kid. He's intelligent, talented, well-mannered, but I can believe nothing he says. And I said, yeah, exactly. And he said, I got 60 just like him. He's in the right place. So that was when life kind of kind of began to even out. Someone had said to me in the worst of those days that um, there's a path for your son just like there is for you. You're not going to dig that path and create it. There's a path for you for peace. There is one for him. But it looks so impossible when he's living in a dugout or sleeping in a car or things are missing or he's missing. But when you call those things that are not as though they are, that path finally began to level out and it was better than if I could have created it myself. So he spent about a year or so in that type of treatment. It was inpatient and then he went residential and he's been in recovery now. I believe it's out. That's him in Malibu. He's been now working a recovery program for six years. He is thriving. Um, We don't really have a lot of recovery-based conversations anymore. It's not like, do you think you're going to relapse? Or do you think you need to make amends? Or, you know, because it took a while for him to come out of some of that selfishness and manipulative stuff. But truly, life has come full circle. And now he's at a place where he's thriving. When he started to do better, I started realizing, oh, my goodness, I am so... um, just internally shattered by I came from this childhood and I have this mom and this kid and then he's gone across the country I really thought that that was the finish line so but I had become so highly triggered and um, really stressed with the post-traumatic stress and I want to say as a side note post-traumatic stress doesn't have to last forever you can come out of that you can do the work and come out of that relatively quickly but you have to do the work it is not an excuse to be explosive the rest of your life or give up and lay down in defeat but I certainly was highly triggered I could not stand a rude cashier or anybody in traffic getting too close I was so on edge so I started working my own program of recovery and started going to meetings and doing therapy and taking walks when situations were volatile alongside my son um it took a while to recover how I felt about my mom there's a lot of forgiveness had to take place we don't really truly have 
a mom-daughter relationship. It's more like an aunt or someone I have compassion for, but forgiveness can go that deep that I can have her around when I truly felt like she was part of killing my son and had such rage toward her. All of that has worked out too in that recovery. Recovery has got into everything in our life. Um, my son comes back and visits now and he speaks out where he's at. His life is not just managing, it's thriving. So that's where we're at now and Usually people ask me what my son thinks of me doing this work or the book, so (laughs) he's fine with it. Actually, when I first put the book out, um, I remember saying, oh my goodness, our story's out. I can't take it back. And he said, just keep doing what you're doing and that your consistency will begin to heal you and people need to hear it. And truly, I still hear from people all over the country who their kids are in dugout type situations and they need to hear hope that you can come out of it. They can recover no matter how awful. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found on Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Unhooked.